If you have your Bible this morning, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 58. So you can go ahead and turn over there. Isaiah chapter 58. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible uh, or don't own one, we've got Bibles provided for you at the middle of each aisle. And you can just flag somebody down, they'll pass one to you. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, we would love you to take that with you and, that, and, and love to talk to you about what you read there. Um, it would be our pleasure to do that. Uh, we're in, we've been in, a, in Isaiah since the beginning of the year and we're winding down the series. We've only got three left, including today. And Where we are now in this series is trying to trace how Isaiah describes for us the way we should respond to the good news that Isaiah has been so taken up with. Isaiah has told us a lot of things about God, a lot of things about ourselves and our failure to live towards God in the way that we should. And he's told us a lot about what God has done in spite of our sin against him to come to us, win us back, take care of the fact that we have sin, have sin that mars our record and threatens our future. That he has come to do away with who we were and to give us a new identity and a new future. We've, been, we've traced all of that out, especially chapter 53 that we read earlier in our service this morning that talks about the servant who came to suffer and through his suffering to unlock the benefits of a brand new world, a brand new you, a brand new everything. And so now where we are, where, where we're drilling down for the last of it is to see if this is true, what would it look like for us to respond to it well? Because it's only good news if we know how to claim what's been won for us. It's only good news if we know that it's for us and what to do with it. And Isaiah has a lot of, of, of great, clear information on this question. Last week, what we looked at was a story that is put into the middle of this book full of poetry specifically to show us what it looks like to trust in God. Because when, when all we bring to the table is weakness and brokenness and rebellion, and when God has offered to do away with that past and give us something totally new, when those two things come together, then the only thing left for us is not to try to buy from God anything, we have nothing to offer him, but to just trust in him, to just trust that his promises are actually true, that if we give ourselves over to him, he will be able to hold us up. That story was meant to show it. What we look at today, and really in the next couple of weeks, are just different layers to what it looks like to trust in God. Because here's the thing, here's, here's an error that we want to make sure we avoid. We don't want to slip into thinking that because God has chosen to save us by his own power and not by anything that we do, and because God has chosen to only ask us to trust in him, and that's all we bring to the table, is a sort of falling over on him, that therefore it doesn't really matter what we do with our lives. I mean, that's one thing you could, that's a place you could go with that information, right? You could say, I can't earn it, and he doesn't expect me to, so maybe it doesn't really matter what I do. You know, Jesus is gracious, He's going to wipe it all clean anyway. So it could cut the legs out from under a, a new and, and more holy lifestyle. That's, that's an argument against the way we've talked about Isaiah's message of hope. But Isaiah doesn't leave that as an option. Because trust is a lot like love. It's not just an interior feeling that just stays in you. It's something that has to express itself. It always bubbles to the surface. It changes how you behave, how you act, how you, how you interface with your whole world. Trust is one of those things that has to show itself. Jesus' imagery uh, in the Gospels is of a tree that bears fruit. And the nature of the tree is what determines what kind of fruit it bears. And trust is a certain kind of tree that is always going to bear fruit. When we looked at sections earlier in Isaiah about what's wrong with the human condition, what's wrong with Israel, what's wrong with us, we know that we started with Israel's lack of trust 
But where we built to was a lifestyle that they were living that showed they had no trust in God. They were pressing people. They were, they were living for might makes right, you know. They were just trying to claim enough power to keep themselves in power. And, to, and they were squashing the interests of all who couldn't stop them. And we talked about how that is really just a natural development from failing to trust in God. When you don't trust in God, you're just left with yourself. And when it's just you versus everybody else, it's kill or be killed. So what we're talking about today is what it looks like when we do trust in God. Because that too shows itself in how we treat each other. That the most definitive way of seeing in yourself whether you really trust God, where the rubber meets the road is in how you treat other people. It's the message of Isaiah. It's the consistent message of the New Testament. And it's one I think we'll be able to get a better grasp on today. What we're looking at, the way that I've titled it, the what what, what way we're going to frame it is, we're looking at what God does want from us. We've already said a lot about what he doesn't want from us, that to, to earn a, a stake in what Jesus has accomplished doesn't require us to clean up our act. We know that, that God is not pleased by that. We've, we know that we're supposed to trust. So what, what does God want from us? What does please him? That's what we're looking at today. If you found the passage, Isaiah 58, would you please stand with me now in honor of God's word? I'm going to read, I'm going to read for us from chapter 58, verses uh, 1 to 12. This is the word of the Lord. Cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily. And delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments, and they delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted, and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves, and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure, and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight, and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness. To undo the straps of the yoke. To let the oppressed go free. And to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. 
and your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt and you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. What God wants from us, that's what this passage is all about. It starts with what God doesn't want. We're going to look at that first and then move on to what God does want from us, what he does care about. What God doesn't want is good works that we try to use as a bargaining chip. That's, what, that's the, the, the gist of verses 1 to 5. Now let me show you how this, how this unfolds. The passage opens up with this call to announce Israel's rebellion, to call it out for what it is, their transgression, their sin. What's remarkable about the passage is where this announcement of their sin begins. Because you look at verse 2 and it sounds pretty good. They seek God every day. They delight in some way to know God's ways. They look like a nation of righteousness. They seek judgments. In other words, they go to God for what he thinks is best. They delight to draw near to him. They want to be in his presence. The most tangible example, they were fasting regularly. Now, all this sounds pretty good, right? How many of us could be described like this? Daily? To seek his face, delight to be in his presence. Does that sound familiar? How, in other words, is this rebellion? A better picture comes out in verse 3. Verse 3 shows they're, they're challenging God. It switches from the voice of God or Isaiah and switches to the voice of Israel, questioning God. They say, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? This passage comes from Isaiah's mind looking ahead to what it would be like when Israel came back from their time of judgment in a foreign land. Isaiah's, one of the tricky things about Isaiah is that it's, it's talking about things that are going on while Isaiah was alive and then sometimes, especially later in the book like right here, it switches to a sort of future-looking perspective where Isaiah is looking ahead after the judgment that he's been predicting has already happened and Israel comes back into the land and they start looking around and they've heard these promises that Isaiah has made other places about the restoration of everything and the the, the good days to come and they look around and, and they live in a place that's in shambles and they have no authority over the things that matter in their lives. They're, they're colonized by another power. They look around and it doesn't match up to what they were expecting. And from this place, after, the, after their exile, they're asking, God, why aren't things better? You know, where are those things you've promised us? But the key here, the key here is not their questioning of God. I think there's nothing wrong with asking God as an honest prayer. Why? What's wrong is what their question shows about their performance before God. Because what they're asking is not, God, why are you letting these things happen? Why are you letting this condition be our condition? They're asking, why have you not seen all the stuff we've done for you? Why have you not responded to our attempts to buy you off? That's the subtext here. The subtext is, they were doing these good works as a way of getting God on their side. Even even more directly, they were doing these good works as a way of getting God under their thumbs where he would owe them, where he would be indebted to them. They were treating him, in other words, like the gods of their neighbors. 
the standard religious practice of this time where Israel was, was what we refer to as, as pagan religion. Not, that, that's not really a pejorative term, it's just the, the, the term that's used for this way of relating to God, that, that, that the powers of the world are seen to have divine forces behind them. And that if you want something out of this world, like fertility or a good crop or safe travel on the sea, then you have to buy off the God who's associated with that power. You, you, you have to offer them sacrifices or participate in some sort of fertility ritual or whatever it is, dep- depending on the God that you want to, to get on your side. And Israel's neighbors, the Canaanites, were all over this. And Israel was starting to adopt their way of thinking about God as if the God of Israel was a deity who needed them and their resources. Because that's ultimately what the gods come off looking like in pagan religion. They come off as terribly, terribly needy. So it's basic economics. The gods have a supply of something humans want. Humans have the demand, and humans have to come up with the capital to acquire what they want. So they figure out, what do I have that I can give this god in exchange for what I want from this god? There's plenty of analogies. We don't, we don't, uh, we don't practice this religion quite so explicitly in our day, but I, mean, I was in graduate school, and I was a slave to my CV just as much as the next guy, right? A few of you that are in graduate school will know what I'm talking about. You want to beef that thing up for the job market. And you do all this university service, you serve on committees, you, you try to give talks, even if it's just going to be five of your fellow graduate students you know, in one of your classrooms, and you put that sucker on your CV, and you put in, and you put in, you put in, not because you love the university or you really, I mean, maybe, maybe I'm the only one who's cynical about this, but it's not because you love the university and you really want to make it a healthier place or you really believe that this work is going to change the lives of the five students who are listening to you talk about it. It's, it's because you think if you put in, you're going to get out. What you put in is going to lead to a, a job on the other end. It's a, it's a transaction. The irony in this especially in Isaiah 58, is that fasting, one of the things they were trying to offer to God as a form of payment for what they wanted from him, the whole point of fasting is meant to be self-emptiness. It's meant to be showing a complete dependence on God that, that I need God more than I even need food. And if I have him and everything that he is, I can do without anything else. And what they had done is they had taken a, a right of self-emptying and they had turned it into a resource. It's supposed to be saying, I have nothing. And they've turned it into something that they have to offer, a bartering chip. They turned it into the capital that they had that God presumably needed and that they could exchange for what they wanted from him. So far from emptiness and reliance on him, their fasting was a possession to be bartered. Can't you see how out of step this is with what we've seen so far in Isaiah about who God is? This God of the universe who needs no counsel from anyone, who holds all the water in the entire world in the palm of his hand, before whom the, the, the nations are like a drop in a bucket, who, who established the mountains and holds them up on his own. He needs nothing. He doesn't need fasting from us to scratch some itch. This God stands alone, completely in his holiness, transcendent above all needs. He gives, he doesn't take. That's the God of Isaiah. Think about how out of step Israel's approach is given what Isaiah said about who we are. Isaiah has said, we have nothing but sin 
and rebellion to bring to this equation. We have nothing. Our righteousness, Isaiah tells us, is nothing but filthy rags. The best thing we've got is filthy because it comes from us. And think about what Isaiah has said God has done for us and how out of step Israel's approach to him is with the message of hope that Isaiah has communicated. What God has done is offered a salvation freely to those who are thirsty enough to realize they need a drink, to those who have no money, recognize it, and come to him for what can be freely given, for what they have no hope of paying for. Now, think about what Isaiah has said about God, about us, and about what God has done for us. And then think about the absurdity of thinking that this God needs to be paid off by creatures like us in order to achieve the things that we think we need. It's a response. Here's here's another way to say exactly the same thing I've been saying over and over here. To come to God as if you've got a bargain for what you need from Him, as if you have something that He wants, that's a response to Him that belittles God as if He needed something and elevates us as if we have something to offer that He needs and it completely disregards the gospel of grace. It belittles God, it elevates us, and it acts like the gospel isn't true. In other words, too, this, is, this approach to God is at the essence of sin's rebellion. The reason he says, cry out to my people about their sin and their rebellion, and then says, they seek me daily, they delight to come into my presence, they want to know my judgments, they fast all the time, and defines that as rebellion, is that their fasting and their goodness on the outside was more about them than it was about God. And that's the essence of sin. Sin is a turning in on ourselves, a self-absorption. Now the main turn in this passage, the main thing that shows on the surface that Israel's approach to God was empty, the main thing is their treatment of each other. The telltale sign that their religious devotion was more about them, what they have to offer, what they want to receive, than about love or trust in God is the way they treated each other. Verse 4 and 5 are not a pretty picture. In the day of your fast, you just want to quarrel and fight. They're oppressing their workers. They're breaking them down and not building them up. They're, they're giving themselves over to conflict. They're shifting blame if we look further down. Pointing fingers, verse 9 says. They are, they are talking maliciously, verse 9 also says. They're, they're potentially or presumably tearing each other down verbally and probably gossiping behind each other's backs. They're defending themselves. They're highlighting the flaws of others. They're, they're self-absorbed. And these are the symptoms. God doesn't care about what you would do for Him when you treat other people like this. Because a tree is shown and known by its fruit. And this is not the fruit of someone who trusts in God to supply every need. This is the fruit of someone who's work, working the system, kill or be killed. And she calls us some concern, right? Because we can't rest on the fact that we seem religious, that we're active on that front, that we're all here this morning, right? More on that later. What God wants, verses 1 to 5, are what God doesn't want. He doesn't want you bargaining with Him. He doesn't, he doesn't want you to change your life so that He will love you more and give you what you want. What God wants is a changed life, a transformed life, a life of good works that are the overflow of your joyful security in Him and in what He offers you. 
not because you want to get something from him, but because you have everything you need already through him. And therefore, you are free to give yourself completely, to pour yourself out for other people. That's the message of verses 6 to 12. So if, if a false repentance, a false turning to God is shown up, exposed for what it is by the way you treat other people, then it makes sense that what God does want, a true repentance, is shown up in the way that you empty yourself in service for other people. That's what I want to unpack for the rest of our time. I want to do it in three steps. I want to unpack what this kind of repentance looks like, what it looks like to pour yourself out for other people. That's, that's the main thrust of verses 6 to 12. And then I want to look at why this is what it looks like to live a life of trust. What's the connection between treating others like this and trust in God? And then I want to talk briefly about how we can pursue it. Get some practical, tangible steps we can take to put into practice a lifestyle of trust in God. That's the three steps I want to take for the rest of our time this morning. So, to begin with, what does this look like? This this form of true repentance, a lifestyle of trust in God. Verses 6 to 12 show us what it looks like. Is not this the fast I choose? In other words, this is what I want. This is the kind of self-denial that makes me happy. To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Verse 6 is all about things that hold humans down. It's about, it's about getting rid of oppression, which one commentator ties to conditions that, 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 it's the condition of being broken by life. To be under oppression is to be broken down by the factors in your life, to rid people from it would be to reinstall new conditions for their lives that would help them to flourish, to to grow, to have joy. The removal of the yoke, the same commentator notes, is about removing ways that humans are treated like just common animals, right? That are just yoked, beasts of burden. Whatever ways humans are not treated with the dignity that's theirs, those things need to be shattered. And in its place, we should be setting people free and enabling them and empowering them to live fully in the image of God. Focus here is on big issues, right? Concern for social structures that oppress and dehumanize. But I love where verse 7 goes. There's a crucial turn here, right? Verse 6 is a big picture. They're long-range goals. They're things that are too much for any one of us to ever accomplish. Verse 7 won't let us blame the fact that these goals are too big for us Uh, blame that for our apathy and our inaction. Verse 7 turns from the big and large scale and long-term goals to the nitty-gritty of every single one of our lives. Verse 7 says, okay, here's the next step. Share your bread with the hungry. Quit complaining about other people's apathy and share your bread. How about share your home with someone who's too poor to put a house over their head? Bring them into your home. Can you do that? Share your clothes with the naked. Don't hide from your own flesh. That's the last line of verse 7. It's a, I take it to be a, a, a way of speaking about empathy. That you don't, don't hide the, from the fact that these people who are struggling, who are weighed down and oppressed, who have nothing to eat and nothing to wear and nowhere to sleep, are your flesh. You are implicated in their concerns. Their plight is your plight because you are one with them as those made in the image of God. They are no different from you. Isn't that what separates us so often from people in these conditions? Is that we, we would like, at least subconsciously, to think that they are where they are because they deserve to be there and we are where we are because we deserve to be there and think, therefore, there's no responsibility. 
And this passage won't let us go there. They are our flesh. Don't hide from that fact. The, the passage continues the imagery. Verses 9 and 10 say some of the same things over again. I love the verse, verse 10 as a way of summarizing what we're talking about here. This approach is not one that gets angry about what some government somewhere is or isn't doing, but that is willing to pour yourself out. Pour yourself out for the hungry to satisfy the desire of the, of the afflicted. See, here, here's why this matters. Getting this connection between verse 6 and verse 7, between the big scale and the little scale. It matters because when we live in verse 6, as those who are you know, all up in arms about the big problems in the world, we're really, really in danger of going the way of Israel, of fasting for what we get out of it. Especially in this cultural moment where, where the elite in public life, the, 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 uh, the, the actors, the actresses, the, the musicians are all taking up social causes and it, and it has a kind of coolness to it to be concerned about AIDS in Africa or sex trafficking or something like that. In the age of Facebook where we want good statuses and wall posts, in the age of self-branding from the kind of shoes we wear to the t-shirts that we own to the plastic bracelets that we put on, our concern for big causes, for distant injustices doesn't cost us much. It doesn't have to anyway. It costs us little, and it's easy for that kind of advocacy to become more about us than about the people that we claim to care for. But when we live in the verse 7's world, the only thing that can make you give your own bread away or bring somebody into your own house or give someone the clothes off your own back, the only thing that can drive you to that is a satisfaction in God, a delight in Him that drives you to other people because you are overflowing with all that he's given you. That gets, closer, that gets us closer to, to the next point here. We've talked about what it looks like to live a lifestyle of trust. Now I want to say quickly why this particular fruit, this lifestyle, expresses trust in God. All right, if your tree, so to speak, is one that's rooted in God, that's confident in his promises, satisfied in him just like he promised he would do, why, why this is the fruit specifically that gets born. I think we've got to talk about this because on the surface, I mean, at least the first couple of times that I read it, these verses almost sound like Israel wasn't wrong to think you offer God one thing in exchange for something else. That the only thing they were wrong about was the price. Because it says, these verses say, do these things and then your light will shine. And then God will be here. I'm here. I'll give you what you want. You're just giving me the wrong currency, so to speak. It's what you could, you could t- go there. I want to make sure we know why that's not the place to go. Like God is not saying, just give me this and not that, and then I'll, I'll bless you. I think the reasons have to do with the context. The reasons have to do with the first five verses that we've already looked at that, that, seem, to, that seem to make it impossible to imagine God caring, needing something from us. They come from the context of the whole chapter. This chapter falls after several chapters we've already looked at in our study of Isaiah. They're all tracking from chapter 53 where God says, you know, in your brokenness and in your sin I have sent my servant who we know to be Jesus to take away everything that you've done. And verse in chapter 54 then says, rejoice 
because you are not who you were. You have been married to the maker of the universe who has given you a new identity. And chapter 55 says, come on, those who are thirsty. If you don't have money, it doesn't matter. Come, drink, buy milk and food. I will give you the satisfaction you haven't found anywhere else. Now, if that's the way you respond to the message that God has provided already for everything that you have, then it just doesn't make sense to say that God is asking here for another price. Because if our treatment of each other was the way we unlock God's blessings, then that would just be us bringing a currency to him, not coming as those who don't have money. It must mean something else. I think what it means, what it means is that this is what it looks like to receive God's blessings already, to have internalized them and to live as driven by them. When you receive everything that you need, when your justification, what makes you right before your maker, when your justification comes to you as a perfect gift that leaves nothing to be paid, and when that justification drives your sanctification, what makes you holy. Well, then this is what it looks like. Jesus himself, in Mark 10, takes up the language that Isaiah gave to him for his own work, the language of the servant. And his disciples are bickering with each other about who's going to be the greatest, you know, who gets to sit next to him in glory or whatever. His disciples were approaching God on the same basis Israel was here. Let me give you something. I'll give you my whole life. I'll even die for you. But I want to sit next to you in heaven. It's an exchange. And Jesus says to them, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And if we have tasted the benefits of Jesus' service for us, then we, what it looks like, is us serving each other. When you have what you need and you're secure in God's love and his provision, you are set free and you are driven out to a radical and self-giving love for other people. One of my favorite expressions of this, of this idea that receiving everything you need from God looks like you giving your whole self away, comes from Martin Luther. Martin Luther was one of the most clear writers in the history of the church about how we got to get this connection right between what makes us okay in God's eyes and what makes us different, what makes us live differently. The problem Luther was helping people to see is that they had reversed the order. You get right, and then God says you're okay. And in the Bible's order, God says you're okay because of Jesus, and that drives you to live in a different and more holy way. That was Luther's insight. And here's the way he put it in a little tract called The Freedom of the Christian. Although I am an unworthy and condemned man, my God has given me in Christ all the riches of righteousness and salvation without any merit on my part, out of pure and free mercy, so that from now on I need nothing except faith which believes that this is true. That's what we've seen in Isaiah so far. The only thing we bring to the table is a faith or a trust that believes that God's promises are true. Why, Luther continues, Should I not therefore freely and joyfully with all my heart and with an eager will do all things which I know are pleasing and acceptable to such a father who has overwhelmed me with his inestimable riches? And now, Luther drives home the point, I will therefore, to please this father who has already given me everything, I will give myself as a Christ to my neighbor just as Christ offered himself to me. I will do nothing in this life except what I see is necessary, profitable, and salutary to my neighbor, since through faith I have already an abundance of all good things in Christ. 
You see the point? This is what it looks like to live as if this new heavens, this new earth, this incorruptibility, this perfect track record God has promised us are real. They're coming. They're trustworthy. What it looks like is for us to become a sort of pilot project of that new world where you live not out of insecurity, not out of a hoarding mentality that would try to make sure that you're established and secure, but where you give yourself away because you have everything you need and you can't lose it. We're supposed to be the pilot project of that coming world. And that's why I just don't get it. When people caricature those of us who talk about the new heavens and the new earth, the world to come, as if it means we don't care at all about this world. See, they got it exactly wrong. It's when you believe that this world is not ultimate, but that another world is coming that is truer and richer and more beautiful and more fulfilling than anything this world has ever offered us. It's when you believe that that's true, that you don't have to live your life in this world trying to gain, trying to amass whatever this world can offer you, that you can actually give yourself away and act like this world is not your home. You can actually care, in other words, about the real life concerns in this world and you can be motivated for serving those who have real needs because you're not trying to make a name for yourself or an identity for yourself here. You've got that. It's coming. You're motivated to serve. Not, you're, not, you're not shipped away through your mind and heart into some glory land beyond the skies. This gospel has real world benefit. And Isaiah 58 is trying to point us to it. So, if this is true, the last thing we ask ourselves, how can we begin to live like this towards other people? I want to call us all to a couple first steps. I see this passage as an, as an incredible opportunity for us as a congregation to reflect deeply on our own lives and on our life as a church and the kind of culture that we want to build. Here's the first step. I think you ought to spend some time in self-evaluation, all of us. Spend some time, set aside some time where you can get before God, read this passage, pray over it, and, and ask real, direct, difficult questions about yourself. Consider this question and maybe even get a friend or two to give you some honest evaluation from their perspective on, on your life as an outsider. Ask yourself this question. Is your life marked by a sacrificial love that and our self-emptying, our tangible, practical love of other people. The reverse of this is also true. There is a direct correlation between an unwillingness to sacrifice, an unwillingness to love those that we don't like or forgive those who've wronged us. There's a direct correlation between that attitude and a deficient and maybe even fraudulent claim to trust in God. First John is a letter that is largely given to this point. Read it in your self-analysis. First John says, if you claim to love God whom you haven't seen, how can you fail to love your brother whom you have seen? A tree is known by its fruit. What's the fruit? Let me take it a step further. Aim at a couple ways. I want to I I aim at another couple questions under this bigger question that might help us see where we could creep, have the self-centeredness of Israel creep into us, even into what we do for other people, even into our attempts to, to live Isaiah 58. On the one hand, ask yourself, is there any concern at all in you? 
about the plight of others? Where are your spending patterns and your leisure patterns, your goals in life unmarked by an outward focus on other people? Our our normal default drive as Westerners and especially as 21st century Americans is consumption, right? To gain, to enjoy, to experience. That's what it looks like for the universal sin of self-centeredness to have gas poured on it by our culture. A fire that's already in us, ignited by the values of those around us. Is there any concern at all? Do Do you think about it? But on the other hand... There's a way of showing plenty of concern for the suffering of others, but, not, but doing it in the same self-serving way that Israel pursued fasting and other good works. There's a way of, of living a life given over to serving the needs of other people and, more, and, and to do, doing that in, in a sense that's more about you than about them and their actual needs. That's more about us than about delight in God or desire to care for them. It can, it's possible, as, as I mentioned earlier, to have a great amount of generosity in your life towards towards categories of people, right? Towards sex slaves, towards AIDS sufferers, but have no generosity whatsoever in your relationships. To be so motivated and passionate about causes or what government should be doing, but your life be marked by conflict in your relationships with each other, by a, a total lack of concern for the, those who have needs that you see on a regular basis. So the first thing is do some self-analysis. And remember, friends, the reason you can do this without any fear has everything to do with the promises we've been talking about together for the last couple of months. Don't do self-analysis as a way of beating yourself down, but as a way of recognizing in yourself a failure to trust the promises that are still true for you, even if you find out that your life is totally self-absorbed. If that's what your self-analysis reveals to you, then the only thing you need to do from that is drive yourself back to the promise that Jesus was totally giving himself away so that those who have totally given themselves to themselves can be free and clean once and for all. There is hope for you in those promises. Now, think about how those promises can drive you. Now here's the second thing. Get moving. You need to think hard about some concrete initial opportunities to put something on the line. Remember this verse, verse 10 I think summarizes what's called for here very well. You're supposed to pour yourself out for those who are in need. That's a lot more. That imagery I think communicates a lot more than something you can just check off of a to-do list. It requires a lifestyle, a new norm a new culture that we're praying towards here in our church. And you won't get towards that culture, towards that pouring of yourself. You won't get past how unnatural it is to relate to others this way until you just get into it. And we want to help you with that. We want to facilitate that for you if you need us to do that. We want to facilitate it through opportunities like the East Nashville Cooperative Ministry. We've seen some great strides in our partnership with that ministry this year. And one of the great things about that ministry, what makes it so valuable, is that they approach those who are living in poverty in the way that Isaiah 58 points us to, as more about relationships than just handing out meals. They hand out meals, and that's a great thing, and we want to be part of that. But their ultimate goal is to give community to people who don't have dignity, who are looked away from when they're passed on the street, who are nameless It's to treat them like they're actually made in the image of God. And that is harder. That's a lot harder than just handing them a bowl of soup. But it's the way you live when you trust in God. 
There's also great opportunities with refugees. We talk about this all the time. Many of the folks that we're trying to connect our people with fit the description of Isaiah 58 exactly. They come to this country often from war-torn places, from oppressive regimes. They are the ones who have been yoked, who have been oppressed. They come here with nothing that they don't receive as a free gift from somebody else. They come here fully dependent on the help of other people. And if we love God, if we have his love in us, if we trust him to provide everything that we need, then we will be crushed for these people and we will be desperate to do whatever we can to help them. So have you thought about some of the tangible opportunities that are available to you right now to start bringing into your life people with these sorts of needs? Have you thought about, if, you're, if you have medical training, have you thought about Siloam Medical Clinic? You realize that is the first stop for every refugee that enters Nashville. That's where they go. And you could be there for them. Have you thought about English language learning, especially men in our congregation? Through our network of relationships among refugees, we have an immediate need for men. Right now, today, we can get you hooked up for an ongoing English language language learning opportunities with guys who, who want it. They want relationships, and they're ripe for the picking. And we can put you into that relationship now. Have you thought about that? We need men especially. I don't know what it would look like for you. What we don't want is a sort of legalism where we expect everyone to be using the same opportunities that we do and looking down on them if they don't. That's not the point. The point is, does Isaiah 58 look like your life? And if not, what have you got to do through prayer and through exposing your heart to the promises of the gospel to get your life matching this pattern? Because this is what God wants from us and this is what it looks like when we really trust him. Father, Help us to trust you more. That is our fundamental prayer. We bring it to you every week, every day. Because there's nothing wrong with your promises. They are full and beautiful. We want them to be true. We struggle to trust them and to trust that you can deliver on them. And our lives show it. So we commit ourselves once again this morning to you. With our emptiness, we ask for you to fill us up and to drive us out through our trust in you to love others well. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.